It's the 9th of April, 2021. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This week, steroids, non-steroidals, COX-2 inhibitors, and algorithms. It's like the good old days of rheumatology. I might go on and on and on. Let's start with steroids. A study of both rheumatologists, over 400, and patients, over 1,200, looked at their beliefs and impressions regarding the use of low-dose glucocorticoids in the control of RA. And guess what? Everybody gave it a big thumbs up. Over 70% were very enthusiastic about A, how rapid steroids worked, and B, how effective they were. But, as is always the case, there's always the but, steroids are worrisome to patients. And that I find encouraging. I really am bothered when patients think steroids are great and don't worry about the side effects. This particular study said that 83% had significant concerns about the safety of steroids, especially when taken um, um, chronically. Half of the patients admitted to already having had serious adverse events associated with steroids. And rheumatologists even acknowledge that a minority of their patients had significant organ toxicity as a result of this. Steroids, it's the best of drugs, the worst of drugs. It, it, you know, we need to find a way to be smarter about the way we use steroids. My only recommendation is scare the hell out of the patient when you start steroids. You're going to get fat, diabetic, hypertensive, stretch marks. You're going to get cataracts and blindness. You're going to get weak bones, fragile bones, broken bones. You're going to get weird infections, common infections, stomach ulcers, muscle weakness, acne. Wait, should I stop or should I go on? That litany is enough to scare anyone. Again, chronically dangerous, acutely wonderful. A nice study actually also looked at steroids um, and their utility when used early. This is a study of 200 plus patients in Beijing who started both Ademard and glucocorticoids uh, and basically showed that um, after three years, only 59% of patients who had started glucocorticoids had stopped the glucocorticoids. The mean time on steroids was 24 months. The odds of stopping steroids were only 10% at six months, 27% at one year, and almost 50% at two years. Um, not very good. Not really very good. And the idea is if you're going to be using all the great, highly effective new therapies we have, biologics, combinations, etc., why are you still mucking around with steroids after two or three years? Enough said about steroids. Let's go to COX-2 inhibitors. I mean, we had plenty of this in around 2000, but you know, one of the, a lot of the big data that came out in the early 2000s during the Vioxx hearings and Celebrex and whatnot was the identification that COX-2 inhibition was highly effective in uh, treating and preventing a number of different diseases, certain cancers, and especially colon cancer. So patients who were taking COX-2 inhibitors chronically had lower risk of colon cancer. Well, a nice study has looked at a large cohort of patients who have um, stage 3 or higher colon cancer, and they go on the standard of care there, which is Folfox. Don't ask me to explain that, but it's, you know, carbotaxol, platinum, ugly chemo drugs. Uh, but they also gave Celebrex 200 BID to half the population, placebo to the other half. And you would think that maybe the outcomes might be better when these patients were on a background of COX-2 inhibition, but it turns out that they were not. 
the three-year disease-free survival was basically 76 versus 73%. Maybe it's because the patients were going to do it good anyway that this didn't really have much of an effect, but turns out starting a COX-2 inhibitor in someone on colon cancer, with colon cancer probably is not going to afford the patient any additional benefit other than its, its pain-relieving potential. Um, a nice report appeared, well, I think it might have been New England Journal, but it was a, uh, it was a case presentation of unilateral sacroiliitis and what the mimics of that could be. And they said, well, it could be Paget's disease, DISH, sarcoidosis infections, bone and hematologic tumors. Turns out the patient had lymphoma, but it wasn't until there was an evaluation, another evaluation, a biopsy, and another evaluation. And over time, it was finally proven why the person had unilateral sacroiliitis. My experience, unilateral sacroiliitis tends to be infectious until proven otherwise. Um, but you certainly can have unilateral sacroiliitis in patients who have a spondoarthropathy. So uh, Panlar, the, the great rheumatologist at Panlar, got together and did a Delphi exercise looking to develop a diagnostic algorithmic approach to patients with joint pain, patients suspected having RA or OA or lupus or other conditions. And it's a really nice paper. You should look at it. We have the citation there. You should look at the, the algorithm itself. It is complex. It does have a lot of lines. It does look like a badly choreographed John Madden play. <clears throat> but what does that say about rheumatology? Our diagnoses are complex. The thought processes that go into them are not for the um, pedestrian um, dabbler. And to try to teach rheumatology requires a big, long, ugly algorithm. So there's a gap there. I mean, I understand that we're great at it and that will always be good for us. But what about the rest of the world? And they're not great at it. My approach to teaching the diagnosis of musculoskeletal complaints is to focus on but a few things. First, don't try to make them think acute, chronic, inflammatory, non-inflammatory, poly versus oligo. That's how a rheumatologist thinks. What they should teach them is what's most common. What happens first? What happens if it is an acute polyarthritis? What are the most three common diagnoses? That's the approach. What happens most commonly? Second, you should teach the hook, the clinicals, the things that have the greatest degree of specificity, whether it's a clinical feature like Gottron's lesions, or whether it's a lab like double-stranded DNA over ANA. Focus on things that are specific that they can carry home to the bank and making diagnoses on their patients. That's all they want to do is make the diagnosis. They'll hand it off to you in most cases, but they want to look good and they want to make a diagnosis. Lastly, teach fibromyalgia. Fibromyalgia is gigantically astronomically underdiagnosed, and yes, by even rheumatologists. We should be teaching fibromyalgia anytime we teach. These folks will present more commonly than will patients who have relapsing polychondritis or Bichette's. Again, the numbers dictate that. Teach fibromyalgia. The CDC has come up with a new list of risk factors for COVID-19. These are comorbidities that generally don't fare all that well. Includes all the things that you knew about before, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and obesity. But they've added to that type 1 diabetes, moderate to severe asthma. That was a big issue early on. Is asthma, is that, are they at greater risk? It appears that they are. Liver disease, dementia, stroke, and other forms of neurologic disease, HIV, cystic fibrosis, yes, obesity, substance abuse, 
um, uh, patients are also at higher risk. You know what was it on the list? Psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, lupus, or rheumatoid arthritis. You're doing a just fine job being the great rheumatologist that you are. But wait, maybe there are some worries. Could HLA-B27, a class 1 MHC um, uh, antigen involved in cell-cell um, interactions and presentation of infections and whatnot, could that be an influencing factor in patients with COVID? Well, Jim Rosenbaum and a number of others looked at this in a survey of over 3,000 spondyloarthritis patients, all kinds of spondyloarthritis, by the way. And it turns out self-declared B27 positivity was seen in 76%. And when they further studied these folks, turns out if you were B27 positive or B27 negative, you had a very low risk of COVID-19 infection, 1.5 versus 1.4%, not different based on this on the on the haplotype and uh, neither was the risk of having more severe disease so that's kind of encouraging what's not encouraging was a report from the french literature actually in their uh, review of over a thousand patients with inflammatory uh, rheumatic conditions um, 13 13 percent of their patients had developed covid and eight percent died from covid when they looked at who did the worst amongst their cohort it was 63 patients who were treated with rituximab. These patients had more severe disease, longer hospital stays, and a greater risk of death. That's right. If you're on rituximab, 21% risk of death if you got COVID, versus if you weren't on rituximab, only a 7% risk of death. This is actually now reinforces what we saw in a report from last month in the German literature, also suggesting rituximab maybe a poor risk factor. So maybe this means you might not want to be doing rituximab infusions if you can't or if you don't have to in your patients. Um, maybe you need to choose alternative therapy. Or is it just that rituximab is a surrogate marker for patients who have end-stage severe disease? They're the worst possible candidates. You don't use rituximab first line, second line, or even third line. You're using it in people who are disasters, and that includes lupus and myositis and other things for which it's not approved. So I'm not so sure it's the B-cell inhibition. We've written about this on Room now, and it wasn't so clear whether B-cell inhibition was a good or bad thing. A case could be made for one side or the other. I think it could also be that rituximab is who you give to your most severe patients. So I'm continuing my rituximab until I learn the answer to that particular conundrum. Um, speaking of rituximab, you know, there was a, a meta-analysis Again, you always have to look at meta-analyses with a, great, certain, uh, a large degree of skepticism, to be honest with you. Um, and, but nonetheless, a meta-analysis of 24 studies that looked at the utility of rituximab in patients who have, what's our most difficult disease to treat? No, not fibromyalgia. No, not Bichette's. Yes, systemic sclerosis. And I was a bit surprised. That's why I published it. Their analysis suggested that overall, there was a, the pool data suggested that the skin scores got better, long-term got better when rituximab was used. But guess what? Skin scores get better over a long-term. So is that regression of systemic sclerosis, regressive systemic sclerosis? They also said that articular outcomes and generalized overall quality of life outcomes were improved after a year of therapy, and even DAS scores were, re, were, were, were significantly reduced. So I don't know, I'm not, I have not used rituximab in my patients with uh, systemic sclerosis. Certainly we do need new therapies. It's good that we have some new therapies, albeit only for 
the lung disease. And they did, they did not make that, that analysis here. They did not show that lung, that lung disease in scleroderma uh, does, gets better with rituximab. Lastly, I, I like this report from uh, Creaky Joints and the Arthritis Power um, Research Network, uh, wherein Creaky Joints did a survey of over 1,500 rheumatology patients and looked at the uh, effects of COVID-19, early COVID-19, on their care. They showed, quite shockingly, 56% of patients avoided their doctor visits. 42% avoided getting lab testing, that testing that was, that was needed. This problem was more commonly seen when um, uh, patients were in urban areas. They saw that telehealth was also impaired in such patients. Um, they showed that 15% of, of patients stopped their DMARD with three of those being unadvised uh, stoppage of drugs, meaning the patient made the decision. They didn't call their doctor. And overall, they showed that these problems were more commonly noticed in lower patients who were of lower socioeconomic status, patients who had missed visits, and patients who had poor ability or poor availability of telehealth. This speaks really loudly for some of the gaps we have in care, especially when people in urban areas, especially the, the unfortunate patients who may not have great skills at telehealth and telemedicine and technology um, and um, and patients, I guess, uh, who are not informed are not going to do well. I think this pandemic should inform all of us that we didn't have a plan for this. You don't have a plan. I didn't have a plan for reaching out to all my patients and telling them the one unifying message I wanted them to hear. Continue your medicine. Keep your visit. Get your lab tests. Everything's going to be good. Call my office if you're confused. You don't have a way of reaching out to them. If you were involved in social media and all your patients were following you on social media, that might, might have worked, but none of you are doing that. Um, if you had a way of sending you know, videos to patients via their email, that would work out great. Such tools do exist. I think, again, we should be rethinking our strategies for how we communicate pa with patients such that these kind of things the collateral damage that's see, been seen with COVID-19 wouldn't occur if such things were to happen in the future. That's it for this week on the podcast. Tune in next week. Go to the website. Check out these citations and more. Also, send in your questions and cases to Backtalk. You can find the Backtalk link on the email and also on the website. Love to discuss you and what you think on a future episode. Take care.